as an entrepreneur, I'm sure you can understand this and so many people listening can probably relate, like you start a company and you're doing everything and you have ownership and everything. And then all of a sudden you realize, hopefully not too late, that you need to start delegating things and you can't be involved in every single decision and you can't do everything yourself, even though you want to, you have to start handing over stuff. I'm Amy Porterfield, ex-corporate girl turned CEO of a multi seven-figure business. But it wasn't all that long ago that I lacked the confidence, the budget, and the time to focus on growing my small but mighty business. Fast forward past many failed attempts and lessons learned, and you'll see the business I have today, one that changes lives and gives me more freedom than I ever thought possible. One that used to only exist as a daydream. I created the Online Marketing Made Easy podcast to give you simple, actionable, step-by-step strategies to help you do the same. If you're an ambitious entrepreneur or one in the making who's looking to create a business that makes an impact and a life you love, you're in the right place, friend. Let's get started. My brand voice guide is my business's North Star when it comes to keeping all my business content and marketing content clear, consistent, and inviting. That's why I created the brand voice guide outline you wish you had sooner, which is a free resource to help your business experience the same as mine. So all you have to do is plug in your business details into the given outline that I've created that has all the essential components of a brand voice guide. So you don't even have to pay to get it created like I did. You can plug in your information and you'll be well on your way to having a cohesive voice across all brand assets. And I've even shared my own brand voice guide with you so you can use it as a reference as you craft your own. It's like having a mentor right by your side. So go to amyporterfield.com forward slash voice guide to grab your copy of the brand voice guide outline you wish you had sooner. And I can promise you, you're going to elevate your brand instantly. That's amyporterfield.com forward slash voice guide. Well, hey there, friend. Welcome to another episode of the Online Marketing Made Easy podcast. Now, if you have followed me for a while, you know that I love a good blowout. Now, most of you know what a blowout is, but for those of you who don't, it's when you go to a salon and they blow dry your hair, but it looks amazing when you leave. So it's not like a haircut or you're not getting your hair dyed. You're just getting a good blow dry. And I'm addicted and I've been going to the dry bar for a very long time, but I'll come back to that. I actually remember the very first time in my entrepreneurial journey where I got a really good blowout right before a big video shoot and my world was changed. Now, if you're scratching your head wondering what a blowout has to do with this podcast and why I mentioned dry bar, well, my guest today could be considered the queen of blowouts, but even more so the queen of the most recognizable blowout business ever, meaning that she's done a heck of a job marketing this business. Her name is Allie Webb and she is the co-founder of dry bar. Yes, that dry bar that I mentioned earlier. She's a serial entrepreneur a guest shark on Shark Tank, and a New York Times bestselling author. 
After 15 years as a professional hairstylist, Ellie stepped away to start a family and become a stay-at-home mom. But something inside her was calling her inner entrepreneur out to play. Eventually, she started offering in-home blowouts to her gal pals, which was essentially the catalyst for opening her first dry bar in 2010, which has expanded into over 150 locations, plus a line of products and a household brand. Now, in this episode, Allie shares her journey and the lessons she learned along the way, including some of her favorite marketing strategies and the steps she uses to take an idea and turn it into something profitable. We'll talk about loosening the grip on your business, recognizing when you're overworking yourself at the cost of your personal life, and so much more. Oh, and by the way, Allie has a brand new book out and it's juicy. It's called The Messy Truth, and we'll chat more about it later on in the interview. But I'll just say, if you want to hear some realness about running your own business, this is the book for you. I absolutely love this conversation, so let's get to it. Hey there, Allie. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. It's so good to be here. Oh, I'm so excited. I've been really looking forward to this for sure. So I want to start at the top. Many of my listeners will know who you are, but there will be some that don't. So can you just like start us out with, this is a big question, but can you share your story from being a stay-at-home mom to building a business empire? I know there's a lot there, but what would you say if someone's like, tell me everything? I imagine most people won't know who I am, but they'll know Drybar. And so I totally understand that question. And by all means, feel free to cut me off because the story can go very long. But I'll try to condense it down. And if for people who are listening, if they've not been to Dry Bar, Dry Bar was the first real blow dry bar of its kind. And I'm a longtime hairstylist. I grew up in South Florida. I have naturally curly hair. And hair has always been my passion. And fast forward to like graduating high school, not knowing what I wanted to do with my life, I moved to New York City and a lot of ins and outs of my story of how I ended up going to beauty school. But in my early 20s, I finally went to beauty school and totally fell in love with the craft, with the people, and became a hairstylist. And I was a hairstylist for years. And then I met my now ex-husband, Cam, who's the creative mastermind behind Dry Bar and all the collateral and all that. He's a branding genius. He and I got married and we were living in New York City at the time. And then we moved to LA and I had my boys who are now 16 and 18. But at the time when they were about three and five, I I was a stay-at-home mom and really thought I'd like hit the jackpot on that. It was like, I get to stay home with my kids. Like what a gift. And I was as happy as could be. And after five years of being a stay-at-home mom, I mean, I love my boys, but I just got the itch to do something for myself. And I was kind of trying to figure out something at this like new mom pace and my kids were still little. And so I decided to start a mobile blowout business. And my network in LA at that time were like all moms because I had moved there when I was like weeks away from giving birth to Grant. And so my whole network was moms. And I, my idea at the time was like, I could start this like mobile blowout business where I could go to like all my mommy friend's house and like blow out their hair while their baby was sleeping. And I think it was just because the mindset I was in at the time and Cam had a good advertising job, but we were living a pretty modest lifestyle. And so I was like cognizant of what I would charge people, despite the fact that like, as you know, no matter really where you live, but especially in LA, going to someone's house to do their hair is like pretty expensive endeavor, at least 150 bucks. And so I was like, 
it was a lot less about the money. It really wasn't about the money at all for me. It was more just like getting out of the house, talking to adults and doing this thing that I love to do. And at the time, I really was very hungry to talk to adults. I mean, I was like in major kid zone for five years and like park dates and so much babiness. And and I loved it, but I was also like yearning and for that adult interaction. So I start the mobile business. I'm only charging 40 bucks. And like the business plan on that was like 220s will be easy for women. And so I posted on this like mommy blog that I was on and said, I'm a stay-at-home mom, long-time hairstylist. I was thinking of starting this business where I come to your house and blow out your hair while your baby's sleeping for like 35 or 40 bucks. And I got inundated with emails from women who were like, yeah, when can you come? And I was like, at first it was the price point. I was like, wow, that's so cheap. And I happen to be pretty good at hair. So it was like really a winning combination. So I started this business. It was called Straight at Home. And it was booming really fast, but I was just one person and I could only do so many blowouts in a day before I had to pick up the kids. And between driving around LA and gas and whatever, I'm fairly certain I didn't actually profit anything. But I didn't even care because I was like, it was so fun. And I was getting to meet women and do something that I loved. And I met so many amazing women who I'm still friends with today. And this was 13 years ago, but I built that network that I didn't even know I was trying to build. And so I realized at some point after doing this for almost a year that I was having to say no more than I was saying yes, because I was just one person. So I came to this crossroads of like, do I want to do this mobily and hire more stylists or do I want to like have a brick and mortar? So I went to my brother and said, I think we should open a location where instead of me going to them, they come to me. And he's bald and was like, what? Like, why can't women blow up their own hair? Like, I don't get it. And which is the response for most men. And after explaining it to him and reminding him of the crazy curly frizzy hair that I grew up with, I got him to, didn't take much convincing. He knew I was having a lot of success in my, my mobile business. So I got him to do this with me. And my brother was always kind of the overachiever of the family and kind of just understood business at a fundamental level that I didn't. And, and Michael had been much more successful in his endeavors than I had been. I was kind of like, I had 16 different jobs and I was all over the place trying to figure out what I wanted to do with my life. It was so satisfying, I guess, that when my brother wanted to do this with me, it was like, this was something that I really knew that he didn't. And so the combination and like the level of respect and all of that was really there because I really understood this business that he didn't, but I knew I needed him for like a lot of the other stuff that I didn't understand, which would come to be very, very true with like negotiating leases and payroll and like all the other stuff that like I just wasn't good at and didn't want to do. So I got him excited to get to do this with me. And he told me he put up all the money and I'd have sweat equity of 50% of the company, which I at that time had never heard of the term sweat equity. And then I was like, that's a great deal. And I was just so eager and excited. And so that's really when the whole thing started. And I would say it took us about, I don't know, six to eight months to get it like off the ground. And in the meantime, Cam, my ex-husband was like building the website and the brand DNA. And I mean, there's so much more, but that's really how the whole thing came to be. And we opened the first store in 2010 in Brentwood, LA. And the rest is history in the sense that it exploded. It was a huge hit. And you've since sold that company. So how long ago did you sell Drybar? About three years ago. We sold it in 2020, like moments before the world exploded. We really just sold the product division of the company, which was also another kind of 
feather in my cap, if you will, because I was very gung ho about building out the product line early on. And it, our first big tranche of money that we raised, which was about 26 million, I think we earmarked like a million for that for product. And everybody was like, yeah, 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 product, you know, because the stores were on fire and the stores were doing so incredibly well. The shops, we had so much demand, we had so much business, we were so busy. And from my perspective, I just wanted really good products and I wanted products that like made your blowout last longer. And what I was finding with brands I was using, it didn't work. And so we sold the product in that division of it. And the plan was to sell off the stores kind of individually because they were franchised and company owned and we were going to sell all the company owned ones. But then the world fell apart and the stores went to zero. So that's not as fun of a story. But on the flip side, we sold the product division for $255 million in 2020. So. so that worked out fairly well for you, to say the least. If you're, I imagine you are, but if you're somebody who believes in manifestation, I did not remember this. My brother reminded me. I said, I think we're going to sell it for $250 million randomly. That was the number. You sold it for $255 million, isn't that? Okay. I love stories like that. You just didn't even know, but you made it happen. And $250 million was like, bananas. Like that is bananas for sure. So the fact that this hadn't even been created and you said that, I love those intuition hits for sure. But here's what I was thinking when you were telling that story. Hair salons have been around forever. So you were jumping into an already proven established industry with a lot of competition, but you differentiated yourself by only offering one service, which is a nod to your motto, which is focus on one thing, and be the best at it. So why do you think this pared down simple concept landed with consumers? Because a lot of my students who are listening, a lot of my listeners, they are trying to do a lot of things at one time. So talk about this, focus on one thing and be the best at it. That's your motto. It wasn't like we came into this like trying to disrupt the industry or trying to be different. It largely came from like the fact that I started this mobile business intuitively at a low price point, but gave a great service because I'm pretty good at doing hair. And it, it was only 40 bucks. So they were stoked on it. And I think it was that piece of this whole story that is so important because not only did I realize there was a hole in the marketplace, like there was nowhere for women to go for affordable blowouts in like a beautiful, cool space. Did not exist. Little did I know that doing just this one service would resonate with women. But again, it was like the price point was great. The place was beautiful. We treated people really well. It was such an, a winning combination that was all just like, this is just what I want. I talk about this so much in the book is that it's easier than you think to create something that is already exists and do it better. Obviously, blowouts have been around forever. I very quickly understood how hard it was to be really good at just one thing and how hard it was to find really great stylists and how hard it was to run the business that like the idea of bringing in lashes or manicures or something that would have been convenient. And I understood the the desire for it. And I also understood from our investors that like, we have this captive audience of a hundred women a day coming in here. Why don't we sell them some more stuff? Well, we could, but to me, it felt very disingenuous. And I wanted to stick to like what I knew and what I could really do a good job of and being successful at it. Because if I had introduced lashes, something that I don't really know, I'm not an expert on lashes. And so I'd have to bring in somebody else and depend on them, which sure that maybe that could work, but it's like, it convolutes the whole thing. And, and even like 
my experience working in hair salons for so long, I always found that like, I preferred to go to either a colorist or a cutter. I always felt in my experience that if you were both, you were probably better and really good at one and like, okay at the other. And that was kind of the mindset I had too. It was like, I want us to be so good at blowouts and just, we're just doing blowouts. So I want us to be known for blowouts and not like overcomplicate the concept. And that's really how we stayed very true to that. And and that was a big part of like raising money and, and all that too, was like, if we came across a potential investor that wanted us to do all these other things, like it wasn't the right fit. Absolutely. So I love that you're talking about some of these lessons that you've learned along the way. And there's got to be a few more entrepreneurial lessons that you've learned throughout growing Drybar. Can you think about some other things that you've learned along the way as you kind of figured this all out? Because you didn't have all the answers when you first started. I didn't know anything. I knew hair. I knew hair and I knew like how to treat people because of watching my parents. But like the million of other things that needed to happen, I did not know anything about. I spent hours and hours on the phone with like the cosmetology board trying to figure that out. It was like finding towel companies, like all the like minutiae you have to deal with when you're starting a business. But I mean, the lessons are, that's what the book is really full of is like all the lessons of growth and realizing when we needed to hire ahead of the curve and that this, and realizing that this brand was growing so fast and that my brother used to always say to me, like, this is ours to mess up because we've captured lightning in a bottle. We have this great concept and now we need help running it. And because we were visionaries on this and my brother was the CEO for a while. And even he realized like there was a point where he needed to step aside because we had gone from like one to five to 10 to 20 stores. And the infrastructure that's required to not implode is pretty significant. But like, I wasn't thinking about that. I was just trying to like make the shop run every day because I was in the stores making sure that everything, that the blowouts were good, the customer service was good, that the music was right. All the things that we learned with my brother was when I was like, I think we need to hire someone to help us, you know? And I was like, all right, that's a good idea. I think somebody else should do payroll. I suck at it. I also suck at operations. And like, as we got bigger and realized like people needed some direction, it's not sexy stuff, but like we realized to grow a company that at this, the pace and scale that we were growing, we needed a lot of help as an entrepreneur. I'm sure you can understand this. And so many people listening can probably relate. Like you start a company and you're doing everything and you have ownership and everything. And then all of a sudden you realize hopefully not too late, but you need to start delegating things and you can't be involved in every single decision and you can't do everything yourself, even though you want to, you have to start handing over stuff, which was incredibly hard for me. I mean, I had the tightest grip on this company and, <laughs> and it would take me years to learn how to loosen that grip and like realize that other people needed to make mistakes in order for them to grow, which I thought if they made mistakes, the whole thing was going to fall apart. Like I was like every cliche in the book learning how to navigate this business as it was growing. And, and the lessons are endless from like how to hire people, how to fire people, like how to create an amazing company culture, like how to grow and then the marketing. And I mean, it's just like lesson after lesson. And, and I think in a lot of ways I had a, a beginner's mindset, which I think is a really just important lesson to learn. But in a lot of ways too, I also felt like one of my biggest lessons was like, I felt like I had to have all the answers all the time. Whereas now I'm like, I feel like it's so much better to be like, yeah, I don't actually know. Can you go figure that out? Like versus this pressure I put on myself because I was the the founder and the face and the, all the things that I was like, oh, I'm supposed to have all the answers. So let me just figure it out, which sure, that's admirable to a degree of like the buck stops with me 
but I didn't have the humility back then to say like, I don't really know, but I'd love to know. And, you know, and I remember learning that like my brother would call his friends in business and ask them questions. It would have truly come out in like interviews where he'd be like, yeah, so, you know, I called up this investment banker and asked him questions. I'm like, you did? I thought you just knew that stuff. We knew so much less than we actually knew. The amount of people that we leaned on, that we called and we asked for help and like, I was off the charts because it was like, this was all brand new to us. I mean, the company growing like at this scale, like forget it. That's such a great lesson though, that you can ask for help. I call my girlfriends in the entrepreneurial space all the time. What did you do about this? What did you do here? What would you do here if this was you? I always do that now. And I haven't always, you're right. For 14 years, there's been many years that I didn't do that. But in the last few, absolutely. I felt like that's like a superpower. Once we realize that like, you're your own worst critic and you're the biggest judge of you and nobody else really cares, then you're like, well, it doesn't matter. I mean, just like I called you when I was launching this book and was like, hey, what do I do here to like make this thing really successful? And, and you helped me with no questions asked. That mentality is so beautiful. And it's like something that I feel really passionate about this kind of like what feels like the second kind of half of my life and my story now is like really wanting to help other entrepreneurs, which is largely why I wrote this book, The Messy Truth, because I want people to know the messiness and the amazingness of growing a business and raising a family and all the messiness that happens in between. And it's just such a mixed, messy bag. (laughs) It really is. And One of the messy things that happens, a lot of people that are listening, they have a very hard time of delegating or letting go, letting go of some control as they build their business. So their businesses are not scaling because they're finding pride that they're a one woman or a one man show and they know how to do everything. And they're also totally burned out in the process. So one point you started adding all these new stores. You couldn't possibly be in all of them. And then you franchised, right? Yes. So how did you give up some of that control without freaking out like this is all going to go down the drain because I am not calling the shot? Yeah, I was going to say, well, kicking and screaming. It was an interesting approach and it was very clunky. And it's what's fascinating. My brother wanted to start this concept called Squeeze, which is a massage concept, and largely because he's bald and never got to partake in dry bar. And, and also mostly because the same, honestly, the same reason that we started Squeeze was the same reason we started dry bar. It was like, there's the discount chains, which are like, Eh, kind of hit or miss, or there's like the high-end spas, which are very expensive and also leave something to be desired. We felt like it's the same founding team to develop Squeeze and Dry Bar. And we just felt like there was a bit of a hole in the marketplace. It was the same thing. It's like massages have been around forever. We've just created this much better brand. It's app-based, even though it's brick and mortar, it's app-based and you can book, tip, whatever on the app. And the reason I brought up Squeeze is because Squeeze we've decided to completely franchise. Whereas like dry bar, we were very confused. I'm like trying to figure out like what was the right decision? What was the right path? Because to your point, when we opened the first location, my brother wanted to franchise really quickly out of the gate because he wanted us to grow fast, which I think was the right thought. But I was very attached to like how the stores were run and they're very, you know, we're touching people. It's very personal. Like, and so I was very against very against franchising because I was like, they're going to ruin the brand. It's not going to be exactly how I want it. And I was like a big baby about it. It was like, no, 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 no. But we had our good friends who live in Dallas who were great. We decided to award them the dry bar in Dallas. And that was like our first real franchisees. 
And then we also ended up doing Arizona. And I have to say, we did a good job and we really put them through the ringer of like finding franchisees. And we made it pretty tough for you to get through this process. And it was a pretty long, daunting process because we were like, almost like we want to scare you away because we want to make sure you, as we used to affectionately say, like bleed yellow. We want to make sure you are fully in this and you get it. And it's hard because a potential franchisee, like they're an entrepreneur in their own right. And so they have their own ideas, understandably. And so I always say that there's like, or we used to always say that there's a lot of ways to do things right, but there's like one way we do things and that's really how we want you to do things. And so if you're going to take this brand on, you need to kind of follow the guidelines of what we've set. And if you don't, like go open your own blow dry bar and do it your way. But this is how we do it. It was a really tough process. And I'd be lying if I said there weren't things that happened along the way that were like felt off brand and like, you can't do this in your one store. We're not doing it in like the 25 other stores. So that was like tough. And it, it would take me years, I would say, to get comfortable with that whole thing of like going to a store and it not like feeling the way I wanted it to feel, but it wasn't like our store. So there was a little bit of like bureaucracy and to like wade through, which I didn't totally love. But at the end of the day, and the reason that we decided to exclusively franchise squeeze was because the franchisees, they had their own like blood, sweat and tears and money in the business. And that skin in the game that they had would make it so like, if their store wasn't doing well, they knew how to go out and do local marketing and they knew the local community. And so that's kind of like how we landed on doing Squeeze It completely franchise and just kind of the back and forth of, of trying to figure out what the right way to do it is because it is hard. Just the, containing control of the brand and the experience and making sure that everybody's doing what I want them to be doing was like, it gives me like stress just thinking about it because it was so... I wanted things to be so perfect and they were never going to be perfect, which was a hard thing for me to come to terms with. But you had to come to terms with that. Is that what you're saying? Like you had to say, okay, it's not going to go exactly how I want it to go, but it's working. This is working. So I'm going to have to let go of some of that control. Yeah. And I can remember sitting in board meetings. We used to have a survey in my day where when you come in after it's a really short survey and and it was like off the charts positive, like amazing. But there was about 1% of people who weren't happy. And I never like paid that much attention to like the data. For me, it was more anecdotally, like I would ask my friends or I'd get feedback on Instagram or whatever. And those people tended to be a little bit louder with their complaints. And my feeling always was like, where there's smoke, there's fire. And if one person's complaining, it's happened to 10 at least. So we were doing millions of blowouts a year, but if 1% of those people were unhappy, that was like hundreds of thousands of people. And so I was like up in arms in board meetings, like, why does nobody care about that? And not that nobody cared about it, but it was like one of the expressions my brother would always say is like, we have bigger fish to fry because the vast majority of people were really happy. And, and I could not get comfortable with that because I was like, but there's a lot of people that aren't. And I, I would like to focus on them. But you also, we have this thriving business and we have 5,000 employees and we have a product line. And there's like, therein lies the like the rub of growing a great business is like, how do you figure out what your top priorities are and what you're going to focus on? You just simply can't focus on everything. And that is just something that is a tough lesson too for me to learn is like, yeah, we have to focus on other things. You can't focus on it all, but it is really hard as a business owner because everything is important to you. This is your baby. You care about all of it. So I can get where that would have been some entrepreneurial growth over the years for sure. 
I know you're focused on marketing and selling your digital products, but I know many of you also have physical products and I wanna talk about Shopify. Shopify is a user-friendly commerce platform that helps you, my dear online entrepreneur, build an online store and make more sales at any stage of your business. They're the force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, Brooklinen, and millions of other businesses at every size. Let me tell you why Shopify is an online entrepreneur's dream platform. It's because it helps turn your browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout experience. In fact, it converts 36% better compared to other leading e-commerce platforms. Yeah, loving that. And I don't know about you, but as an online entrepreneur, my customer's experience, especially when it comes to checking out, is so important. Plus, not only do they support your customers, they support you as the entrepreneur. Shopify's award-winning help desk is there to support your success through every question and every step of the way. There's a reason Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash made easy, all lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash made easy now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. That's shopify.com slash made easy. We are online marketers, which means we have unique needs. And there are so many options out there for paid media. Sometimes it's hard to figure out where should you go to reach your ideal audience. But here's the thing. Have you thought about LinkedIn ads? LinkedIn ads empowers marketers with solutions for you and your customers, and it allows you to build the right relationships and drive results and reach your customers with meaningful content. You do not want to sleep on LinkedIn ads. And here's the thing, 79% of content marketers said LinkedIn produces the best results for paid media. I hear it from so many of my peers, and I know you're doing important work. And with that, you wanna make sure that the work you're doing is getting in front of the right people. And that's what LinkedIn ads will allow you to do. So let your marketing efforts connect with the right audience and get a $100 credit on your next campaign. So if you go to linkedin.com slash Amy, you can get that $100 credit. So that's linkedin.com slash Amy. Terms and conditions apply. One thing I want to focus on is the bright yellow branding. You all crushed it. It sounds like maybe that was your ex-husband who really took that. But talk to me about how important your branding was and any lessons, any marketing lessons you've learned along the way that could maybe help my listeners as well. Yes, I'm so proud of the brand. And we did all kind of land together on yellow. But I will tell you that when we were developing the concept for dry bar, Cam was like, I'm going to go look. Never worked in hair salons, didn't know anything about that. But he was like, I'm going to go look and see what all the other hair salons are, look like, what they do. And then we're going to do the opposite. And that is like gold. If I say, if you get nothing else, get that. Because what he realized was like, largely, and I'm sure you'd agree with this, most hair salons are black and white and red. They've gotten better, I think. And there's some that are certainly not that. But there was a kind of a theme and kind of a generalized idea of what hair salons look like. That we all were like, well, we're going to be the opposite of that. And it also was like, was this California brand started in California and it was my baby. It was my vision and idea. So it was like a little bit kind of based on my like sunny, happy disposition. Is that I say that 
with a wink, but it was like this California brand. And so we wanted it to be bright and happy and we didn't want it to be dark and smoky like salons historically were. And so Cam looked around to see what everybody else was doing and was like, well, let's not do that. And we made our website like this, the main color was yellow. So in order for yellow to pop, you know this, it has to be on like a color that it pops on. It doesn't pop on white. And so Cam made the website, like this charcoal gray. And everybody who saw that was like, it's so masculine. And we're like, it's not really masculine because there's this bright yellow everywhere. And the bright yellow really came to life because it was on top of this charcoal color. And, and I loved how everybody was like up in arms about that. Cause we thought it was awesome, you know? And that was like, those were some of my first marketing lessons from cam about like, go against the grain, do something different that nobody else is doing, like be a standout. We were always thinking of the brand in like terms of yellow and bright and happy and sunny and, and fun and light. And that's really like what informed it. And then we worked very closely with our architect and like, again, like continuing this theme. And I wanted the shops to feel very clean and white and like, like a boudoir and French, but also modern. I mean, thank God for Josh, our Josh Heitler, our architect, because he was like, I would send him like visions of like something so ultra modern and then something Victorian. And luckily he was able to, you know, and that's another lesson in like hire a really good architect who knows what they're doing. Cause I always felt like Josh would say to us, like, I won't let you guys make a mistake here. I'm going to protect you from yourself, which I have seen firsthand many businesses not take the advice of an architect and say, you know what? I actually think this is better. And it's like, really like know your strengths and know your weaknesses and know what works and what doesn't. And like use, not to say that you shouldn't make your own decisions, but like you bring in an expert for a reason and like trust them, bring in smart people who are smarter and better than you at certain things. And, and that was certainly Josh and, and the lessons like kind of keep coming from them. I mean, we opened dry bar in February of 2010 and it was like right around the corner for Valentine's day. And, and I went to get like red roses to put in the shop. And he was like, why are you getting red? You should get yellow. And I was like, oh, right, because it's on brand. And it was like, yeah, I would learn these things over time, like how important it was. I also think it's it's important to, to point out that brand is not just the logo and the colors and the way things look as we imagine them. But to me, the brand was also that the bathrooms were really clean and that the people at the front desk were nice. Like it is all part of the brand. We think of branding as like the way something looks, the way a logo looks, the way your website looks, which of course it is. But for me, the brand was like all encompassing of like every touch point that you discovered. And in dry bar, when you go into the bathroom and the bathroom's super cute and you want to take a selfie in there, that was on purpose. And you always have Q-tips in the bathroom because when you get your hair blown out, you get your ears wet. There's iPhone chargers at the stations. Like we tried to think of everything that we wanted as a consumer, which is again, what we've done with Squeeze. It's like, what's not being done well in this sector and what can we do better? Yes, for sure. I once read a quote from you that said, I feel like I got a business degree in entrepreneurship, growing this thing and learning so much. And I deeply understand this statement. I know that many of my listeners feel like they have to learn all the things before finding success or before even getting started, but that isn't always the case. So how do you feel about getting in the trenches and learning as you go? Do you feel that that made you a better business owner and entrepreneur? A hundred percent. I mean, obviously I can't speak to the other side of that. And I'm happy that so many colleges have like entrepreneurial programs now. And I, it's funny that I get asked to speak at a lot of those and I just get a kick out of it that I didn't go to college, but I'm glad that they have those now because 
and they're bringing in people like me to talk about like real life experience and what it's like. And I think there's only so much that you can learn by observing and whatever. And listen, I don't think being an entrepreneur is for everybody. Listen, I know a lot of really great people who've worked for us for over the years, who I'm still very close with, who like just don't really have a desire to have their own company. They love being like a number two to the founder or whatever, or they love being head of marketing or whatever it is. And I don't think everybody is cut out for this for sure. The fact that like we basically found ourselves in like the call center business because we realized very early on that we couldn't have our phones inside the shops because it was too loud and hectic and crazy that we had to pull them out and have somebody answer them in like a much more contained area. And we found ourselves in the call center business. Like, I don't want to be in the call center business, but we had to be, you know? And it's like, you just don't know what's coming for you or how you're going to pivot. I mean, one of my very, one of my best friends, really, I don't know if you know the brand Olive and June, Sarah Gibson Tuttle is one of my closest friends. And she started out with salons and ended up pivoting really in COVID to product. And now the salons have since closed mostly because of COVID. And she has a thriving brand of nail polishes and kits and sure business is on fire. And it wasn't where she started. Our first conversation, the reason we became friends is someone introduced us because she wanted to be the, the dry bar of nails and she wanted to open salons. And that was the vision in the beginning. And I think maybe she knew in the back of her mind, she was going to do product, but it's like being open to whatever happens and where your business is going to go you just don't know. And I think people get caught up in this idea of like, you have to have it figured out or you have to have all the answers. You have to know what you're doing. Like nobody knows what they're doing. <laughs> Not in the beginning anyways. Okay, absolutely. I hope if you all walk away with nothing else, nobody knows what we're doing. We're figuring it out as we go. And that is okay. And if you give yourself permission to do so, you'd be amazed what you're able to create. I mean, look what Ali's been able to do. Now in your new book, The Messy Truth, you share some raw and personal experiences, and this is a big one for my audience, about pouring yourself into your business and allowing aspects of your personal life to come at the cost of that. So this is very common for entrepreneurs and especially for many of my listeners. Yes, entrepreneurship requires very hard work and we often choose it so that we can have more freedom in our personal lives. So can you talk about how you pulled yourself out of overworking yourself and back into being present in your personal life? It was distracting from myself, from what was happening in my personal life with my work, with building this company. And we were on a rocket ship and I was loving it and I loved everything about it. And I was like pouring myself into it. What I wasn't doing was really paying attention to what was going on with my kids and my marriage and all the other things that ended up imploding in my life. I think that it's dangerous how much we we have lived in a society of like we overwork and we work ourselves to the bone, which, you know, in this, again, in this like second stage of life, like I don't do that anymore. There's a lot more things that are a lot more important that I've realized now. And listen, I get that I'm like, if you're rolling your eyes right now, because it's like, well, I've sold a company and now I have a lot more time and whatever. But I guarantee you, if I had to do over knowing what I know now, I would have paced myself a lot differently than I did. And I use the excuse, and I use the word excuse lightly, like I used it as this like, I love what I'm doing and this is so exciting and exhilarating, blah, blah, blah. It was like some sort of badge of honor to like work myself to death. And now it's like, I meditate, I read a lot, I take a lot more time for myself than I ever have. And granted, I'm in a different stage of life growth, but if I had to, again, if I had to do all over again, I would do it differently. And I would give myself more time and space. And 
I'm 48 years old. And I, in the last six months after my life really falling apart again, have I learned massive lessons that like, why didn't I learn those? I mean, whatever, I wasn't supposed to. And I, I believe in all that. I also went through like a massive, crazy life implosion when I got divorced from my first husband and when my son went into rehab and all those things that happened. And I did some work on myself, but not all the work that I needed to do, which I have now more learned in this phase of my life. And and again, I do believe that you learn things when you're supposed to, but I strongly believe that if I had, if I knew then what I know now, I would have like slowed down and taken a little more care of myself and watched out for myself a little bit more than I did. And I mean, the subtitle of my book is like, I sold my business for millions and almost lost myself. I mean, it's funny. I was, somebody said that today and I was like, almost like I did lose myself. I was just able to bring it back, which I think is the, is the important part. What I love that you said, and I say this to my students all the time, I would change so much about how I got started and how much I worked and how much I hustled. And I firmly believe I'd still have the success I have today. Like we work a four day work week in my company and there's 20 full-time employees. And I could have done that on year two or three, but I was so scared to take my finger off the pulse of like, oh, I've got to be in everything at every minute. I don't think that is necessary. No, it's like that tight grip that we have or this like idea that we have control, all that stuff. I mean, I just think you learn that later in life when like you get, I have to give it credit to Brene Brown because she said it, but I always want to say it. It's like, she was like, you get that tap on your shoulder from the universe that says like, you can't do this shit anymore. The gig's up. And if you know, you know what I'm talking about. It's like, you just, you cannot run it. Like at some point, whatever you're not paying attention to is going to come for you. Whatever you're ignoring and whatever's not working, it's coming for you at some point. Absolutely. Well, here's what I was really excited about. When I saw that this book came out and I saw finally what it was going to be about, because you and I have been friends for a while. I didn't realize you were going to go there. And first of all, The Messy Truth, such a good title, my friend. I absolutely love it. But you were so vulnerable, so real in this book. And you painted a picture of what entrepreneurship looks like for a real person going through real stuff. And I think it's one of the first books I've read that I'm like, yes, this is the gritty stuff that we need to hear. And it's so important. So thank you for writing this book. I can only imagine it had to have been hard at times to share some of the things that you shared. And it's so important for other entrepreneurs that are coming up behind you. If someone's listening and they're just starting their entrepreneurial journey, or they've been at it for a while and it's rough and it's, it's hard, would you say this is the book they need to read? Yeah, because the thing that I love and I'm most proud of with this book is that it's a real authentic portrayal of really just my life. But I think that it encompasses how amazing and exhilarating it can be to like have your own business, start your own business, grow your own business, but then how it is just chock full of things going wrong and life happening in the background and like everything falling apart. And yet you can still be okay and get through it. I think that we all feel better knowing we're not alone. I hope people will look at me and it's people who have loved Drybar, admire what we built in Drybar and read my story and read this book and be like, oh yeah, like she did not have it all figured out. She definitely didn't have it all together. And yet she still did something pretty great. You know, if people can relate to that sentiment of like, it doesn't matter what's happening in your life. It doesn't matter how much has happened and you can still 
come out on the other side and just keep going. Just keep going. It doesn't have to be perfect. It doesn't all have to work out as you planned, but you can still build something amazing, which you did and you have continued to do. And it's never too late. It's never too late. Amen to that. I absolutely love that message. This has been such a wonderful conversation. Thank you so very much. Where should people go right now? Where can they learn more about you? And obviously they can get your book wherever, but where do you want to send them? I think aliweb.com is like the easiest place where everything lives and the mastermind that I started is on there and all the stuff. Awesome. I didn't know you started a mastermind. Okay, good. We're going to look into it for sure. Yeah. Do you know Jacqueline Johnson? From She's the founder of Create and Cultivate, another amazing, her and I, and this other amazing woman, Marina, who's a branding expert and genius. And she's like our CEO. What's Marina's last name? Middleton. She's really bossing me and Jacqueline around. She's the best. But yeah, it's like, you know, a way to give back to other entrepreneurs. And so we're, we just started it. We just launched it. And it's so far, it's been very, very successful. So that's been exciting too. So who knows what's next? There might be some new stuff we didn't even know is coming down the pipeline. So we'll be paying attention. Thank you so much, my friend. And congratulations on your beautiful book. Thank you. So good to see you. Well, there you have it. What a fun interview. I felt like we were just sitting in her kitchen over a cup of coffee, just talking about entrepreneurial life, the good, bad, and ugly. And I hope you really loved this episode as well. I think my biggest takeaway was when Allie was talking about the fact that she started this mobile, essentially dry bar, but the mobile version before she started her actual company. And she said, I don't even think I made any money off of that. By the time I was driving all over LA, I wasn't charging that much. But that was the moment that put her in the game. I have a whole episode where I talk about that there are no wrong turns. Everything that is happening with you, to you, for you right now is meant to be there to get you to where you need to go. There are no wrong turns. Even when it feels bad, even when it's not working, even when you're in the trenches and you're so confused as to what to do next, you are meant to be there because that is going to get you to your destination. Maybe not overnight, maybe not as fast as you want, maybe not in the cleanest way, which is why I love her book, the messy truth. It could be very messy, but there are no wrong turns. Everything is happening for you and you are exactly where you're meant to be. I just believe that to my core. And it's something I've really adopted over the years. And when you do, you are not as hard on yourself. You give yourself more grace and you appreciate where you are in the moment in this season because you know it's going to get you to where you need to be, exactly where you need to be. And that is what happened with Allie. And I love that she shared this journey along the way. So I want to hear what you loved about this episode. I'm just at Amy Porterfield on Instagram. So come on over to Instagram. Let me know what you took away from this episode. I shared my big takeaway. I want you to share yours. And thanks for hanging out with me today. If you never want to miss an episode, head to amyporterfield.com forward slash podcast and be sure to sign up to receive my weekly newsletter where I share all of my weekly podcasts. You'll never miss one. So amyporterfield.com forward slash podcast will get you on the special list so you always know a new episode is coming out. All right, my friend, thanks for tuning in. I'll see you next week, same time, same place. Bye for now.